Welcome to Wax Half Full, episode four. Improbably, we've lasted four episodes. I have no idea. I don't think I've been responsible about anything like this in my entire life. I'm Wax, the titular host of this show. Apparently, you guys value my opinion so much, you keep coming back for more. Actually, the fact that you guys are commenting on this and like giving feedback, it's like inflated my ego a little bit. So, I don't know. Get ready for like 20 more of these. And of course, my co host, Ads. Ads, how you doing? I'm alright. Bit tired today. But as per usual, I just got destroyed in soccer last night, so my ego is bruised rather than inflated. Tired is like the most like Western response to like to give to how are you doing. I don't think it's a thing in other cultures, or is it? I, it's very American, I feel, or maybe very Western just to say how are you doing, and someone say ah I'm tired. I don't think that would happen if I was in Korea. So I would ask, hey, well whatever the Korean person, how you been doing? If you said tired, people like yo what's wrong? You know are you sick? That would be the normal thing, but. Somehow it become culturally normal to say you're tired now? I don't know. I'm tired. I, I, don't, I didn't understand anything you just said. I'm just going to ignore All right. it. All right. There we are. Let's move on. <laughs> also, we have a guest today. We have um, we have Manasir. Wait, should we call you Manasir? Manny? What, what's your alias these days? I think most people just call me Manny. I mean, that's my nickname in real life. Manny. I say real like, life as if the internet isn't, you know, our entire lives right now, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah. all my mates call me that, so you're free to call me that as well. Like the philosopher. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure that's what it refers to. Yeah. Could you introduce... Oh, and uh, now, as long as we're keeping the pretense that our audience is more than this chat, please, please introduce yourself. Um. Yep, my name is Alex Menezier. I think uh, I was briefly internet famous for being an analyst slash writer uh, in League of Legends. So I worked for Riot Games for a bit. Uh, ah. I'm a normie now, so I just work in economics, financial, investment analysis, things like that. Okay. Um, but I, I've kept up, um, I guess, well, I've, I've refined the art of, of having opinions and, and sharing them. So I guess that's why I'm on the podcast. It's Manazir or Manasir? I thought it was it's always actually, thought... It's pronounced Manazir, but I think if you're not, like, familiar with French phonetics, that's not, like, I don't expect it to be able to pronounce it. It's like, it's like you know, if you've got friends, like Vietnamese mates. Yeah. Like, like Ke- Kevin Nguyen. Like, yeah. no one pronounces it that way. It's just Nguyen. Like, and that's fine. That's acceptable, you know? Well, it's French, it would be like Manizier or something like that. Yeah, you know? yeah, but it's like, it's pretentious. It's like, it's like if you go to Paris and you say, like, oh, we're in Paris eating croissants. Like, like okay. yeah, you're right, but you sound like a dick. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that's that's kind of, uh, depends on your company, really. Because some yeah, people say it's more true. respectful. I think if yeah. I was talking to a French person in Paris and I said Paris instead of trying to say Paris, Paris, whatever. Paris. But yeah, instead of like, like at least trying, they'd actually respect me for trying poorly. I think it's a very country to country. I definitely went to when I was in Paris for a little bit. It seemed like when I tried to speak terrible French, people at least respected the effort. And if I just spoke in English, it'd be sort of like you know that's I was actually disrespecting them. Yeah, it's inconsistent. I think most cultures are pretty happy to see tourists take an interest in their language, their food, their culture, etc. Yeah, <laughs> talking about food. Uh, so I had the microwave for dinner. And I will say that it's probably the most adequate thing I've had. Like adequate. adequate. Yes, that describes it perfectly. How do you feel about it? Because I was surprised to learn it was not just an American uh, seasonal. It's actually, well, I don't know if it's worldwide, but it's in Australia too at the same time. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think it has the same sort of following here that it does over here, over there. I mean, there was like a like a Simpsons episode on the Rib Witch, right? Right. Which I think was the first australian encounter with the mcrib at least for someone of my generation yeah and the mcrib comes back every couple of years i last had it in 2018 it is now back i plan to have it for lunch today but we're recording at 12 12 p.m so it's just a bit too early for me to go out and get a mcrib right now yeah but did you see did you feel like the um the hype spillover from american twitter it arrived upon your shores via the internet that maybe for the online crowd i'm not that online like, is, is the mcrib oh you're hype? not that online come yeah. on dude yeah. i don't feel like australians have that same like hype for any anything any like sort of new food what was that kfc one that dropped a few years ago double the, down the double down yeah the double down yeah i remember the hype around that but other than that i don't remember anything else it's exported right like a like most of australia's culture it's just exported from america like I'm saying it's the online crowd. I don't mean like the extremely online crowd, like the people that tweet at we, the obvious We've um, marketed ourselves as extremely online already, so it's okay. Well, yeah. I, I think I'm regular online, and by that I mean I, I follow Everyone? the food blogs, I'm on the cooking websites. <laughs> like, that's where people get aware of things like, like you know when um, In-N-Out 
to like a pop-up shop in sydney that would yeah, exist yeah. for hours man yeah exactly like, there's enough people who are who are like quote-unquote like minorly online to, yeah. to create like demand for these things that's right well so regardless huh? so what do, you, what do you think about it i'm pro mcrib i'm staunchly pro mcrib wait how I much think... the cost there could you could you tell me that first sorry uh, what's the cost there it's six dollars eighty well okay, it was not... two years ago i don't know how much it is now all right okay, sorry keep going i interrupt you yeah um the chief appeal of the McRib is that it kind of mind controls you into thinking that you're eating a rib in the most ideal way to eat a rib, which is like without the bone, right? I think most people would agree that regular ribs are kind of like a primo cut of meat. Like that's why you pay so much for them in steakhouses. They take a lot of effort to prepare, but the meat is so rewarding. It's tender, it's juicy, it's flavorful, it's got, you know, textural contrast. I know the McRib probably isn't actually made of rib meat, but just the fact that they branded the McRib and makes me think that I'm actually eating rib meat, like, I find that quite deluxe as far as fast food goes, even though it's from McDonald's. Okay, that gives me, like, w- a couple of, like, big questions. So in Australia, you perceive rib meat as, like, luxury? Cause, like, oh, yeah. Cause, yeah. Are, so is it perception or is it actually expensive? It's above, like, above the normal price for, like, going out and eating a steak, I'd say, right? Depending yeah, on where I- you go, obviously. Like yeah, a rack of ribs go. competes with like a mid-end steak here. So if you get like a nice ribeye, you're probably paying about the same as you would for a rack of, you know, pork ribs. Okay, because that's like insane. Well, not insane, but that's like really weird to me because in, in the States, obviously, yeah, if you get like a big rack of ribs when you go out, it's going to cost a lot. But everyone knows that ribs are like cheap. Like if you right. get them at a supermarket, you can get a huge rack of ribs for like not much. Like the per pound price is probably maybe like a quarter or less of a of a steak well of a good steak maybe like half of like a you know low-end steak but it you know it's perceived as being like pretty cheap kind of like comfort food yeah it's part of the comfort food uh, repertoire it's not something that only you only bring out on a special occasion so i i find that already kind of like a so yeah maybe that helps perception in australia compared to compared to america because in america obviously we like ribs too but it's for a different reason. It's because like it's like a comfort food. It's just a delicious, like homey. Even that, it depends on where you're from, I guess regionally. Yeah, but it's a, it's just a delicious meal. Yeah, for sure. And I did notice the difference when I did visit the states last time. Uh, my last trip was to Raleigh in North Carolina, which you know has quite a strong barbecue culture. Well, there, yeah, there we go. Good example. Yeah, and and the ribs are just like a part of the menu, like you would be at you know any other steakhouse, and it wasn't elevated. It was just. Yeah, it's ribs. You know what it is. They didn't waste time trying to tell you about it or, you know, puff it up as some something more than what it was. And I found that interesting because, yeah, ribs are... Di- like, when you go out for ribs in Sydney, you're going out for ribs, you know? Mm. There are places called Ribs and Steaks yeah. here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's a bloody restaurant called Ribs and Steaks. Uh, I think part of it might be because we're not uncultured with ribs. Like, we don't cook them at home for the most part. We don't so cook you... them at barbecues. Yeah, oh, you, you, don't, you don't see ribs as, like, a dinner kind of thing. Never. Yeah. I can't think of any. No, I can't think like, of any time. Like maybe once, randomly. But yeah, it's more like a going out food than an eating. Oh, you never make them at home. No. no that's that's kind of crazy because like they're like, pr- I would say they're pretty easy to make. Like it's actually, and the cut is actually very cheap. So it's something that you, you it's very. You know, if you were having people over, I feel like that's something that would be almost like a. Maybe not a go-to, but it'd be something very easy to do. You just cook like a giant rack of ribs or two, and then you just feed a bunch of people, and it's quite it's quite cheap. Yeah, and I think perhaps this is the appeal of the McRib that maybe cuts differently in Australia compared to America. Like, mm. I don't know, what, what comes to your mind when you think of the McRib? Is it like a comfortable sandwich? Is it like homey? Or is it fancy? Like, what's the appeal well, no, of it for you? It's not fancy at all because it's a McDonald's. Right. It's, but it's just like, it's just... It's so amusing. I think that's that's the biggest thing. Oh, you know, look, I don't think anyone actually connects it to actual ribs. Like everyone eating it knows there's probably not much rib meat in it, if at all. It's just the novelty. Oh, like look at this cute thing. It's 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 kind of hilarious. But we like the idea of it. You know, yeah. this thing that's been forced into this mold that has like the fake ridges for the bones. It, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's so quaint. You know what I mean? Uh, you guys keep talking. I'm gonna go do something. I'll be. <laughs> okay. Is he allowed to do that in the middle of a podcast? I feel okay. like I feel like I haven't tried hard enough to include him because he's vegetarian. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I guess yeah, he's a bit isolated from this conversation, but he oh. understands what I'm saying with regards to the cultural meaning of the rib here in Australia. 
right? Okay, yeah. That, well, I learned something. I'm shocked. I didn't yeah. know it was like sort of like an event special food more than like a very commonplace food in the States. I'll take this opportunity to talk about, you know, like the chef's cuts, right? When we talk about beef, the chef's cuts. Yeah. Yeah. So things like skirt, flank, chuck, things that aren't that appealing to your average diner who doesn't know how to prepare them at home because, you know, they're a bit tough. They've got that intramuscular fat. Um, the tendons take a lot of breakdown, whatever. Over here, they're pricey as hell. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's our barbecue culture or what, but like, I have to pay 14 bucks a kilo for chuck steak, which is meant to be like a cheap stew cut. I just cannot, like, I can't find cheap, affordable chuck anyway. Do you guys not braise things? Do you not make stews? Well, I do, but that's only because I'm like a, you know, I'm the classic cosmopolitan home chef. I've been encultured in things like Serious Eats and New York Times cooking. I know what gumbo is. Like, I'll, I'll make, um, like... No, but but I mean, like, beef stew with, with you know, potatoes and carrots. That's, yeah, that's it's very, not, it, it is very English. No way. Hmm? It is English. You're, you're correct. It is English. But the gap between that sort of English, Australian home style, you know, Sunday roast cooking versus what the average um, city dweller eats here in Sydney mm-hmm. is huge. Like, I, I just cannot imagine the last time I, I've been searched you visiting a friend's house. That's oh, so weird. Yeah, no. Because in, in America, I'm back. I would say, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> welcome back. Sorry, I'll try to throw a vegetarian-oriented question at you. Uh, no, it's all good. I'm cool. I'm, in, I'm enjoying this. I, I feel like, you know, in the States, it's more that the norm is like beef stew or like pot roast or these stew dishes yeah. that you make out of cheap cuts. And then, you know, on, you know, you'd have on like Friday night or like Sunday night, you'd have like the nicer cut and you'd do like a faster cooking method that's more like luxurious. So uh, is, is that how... Is that how it is? Like every day you guys are having pork chops and steaks? Is that, oh, is that how it works out? I'm convinced our national dish is spaghetti bolognese. And not okay. not the classic, you know, Italian slow-cooked ragu, four hours with chicken livers and pancetta. Like I'm talking the 500 gram block of 80%, you know, lean beef mints from Woolies. Kind of steamed in a non-stick pan until it's grey. And then the mm. jar of sauce poured over the top and served with like overcooked spaghetti. That is a uh-huh. national dish. Oh, that stuff is good. That's, that's like... That stuff is good, though, man. Yeah. Everyone knows how to make it. It's, yeah, too, it's, like, it's too hard to make all that other shit. No one I don't time. think so. I don't agree with that. No, okay. It's, it's not that it's too hard. It's that it requires too much effort for the reward when most people are okay with just... Like, I'll make spaghetti and I'll eat spaghetti for like three days. Yeah. And be like, yo, three days of not having, having to cook again. I'll take that deal any day, <laughs> any day of the week. How much other stuff can you make that will stay good for three days? Like, probably a lot of stuff, but well, yeah, I mean, all actually, actually, a lot of stuff. Yeah, like anything that will freeze, really. Yeah, yeah. But then you have to deal with freezing. I just put it in the fridge. Ads. Can you eat anything at McDonald's? Yes, You're they a... they introduced a vegetarian burger. Oh, the it, McVeggie. I've had that. It sucks. It's not that good. <laughs> oh, what's it based off? Do you know which uh, which plant based? manufacturer it is i don't think is it, it is any of them because i think oh. the only, we don't have any of those ones any of the american oh. ones here we do they're just expensive as fuck yeah yeah, yeah oh. they're, they're super expensive but, um we have our own one that hungry jacks or burger king has i forgot what it's based off the beyond burger is it impossible no, no burger know. king's it's called impossible. the rebel whopper is that what you're thinking yeah about? the rebel whopper what's that based off it's impossible well in america it's based off it's called the impossible whopper in america i don't know if it's the same in uh over there. Let me look it up, actually. We're all looking it up at the same time. I have not heard. Yeah, I've just... Googled Podcasting. It it's called Hungry Jacks here, by the way, not Burger King. Yeah, it's called Hungry Jacks. So uh, it's probably why it's different. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that that one's pretty good. I, li- I like that one. That's pretty good. That's probably the best one out of all of the like fast food ones. Yeah. I think um the McVeggie in particular harkens back to an era of vegetarian fast food where people were all right eating a patty made of like... You know, pea protein, chickpeas. Yeah. Well, potato. I actually like that stuff. So it's not yeah, it's not deal. bad. Like, I'll enjoy that. I think the whole imitation meat thing is a different thing. And, you know, I could go on about how that's what people Chinese have been doing it better and longer than anyone else. But yeah. um, uh, all this stuff about Beyond and Impossible, that's quite new. Okay. Oh, okay. I looked it up. It's not Impossible. It's made by another company that I assume it's is, like, strain lo- is local company. to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Made, 100% made by a strain company. So, so you're saying, like, they're not quite good yet? I've had the actual um, imitation meat or meat replacement, like 
whole plant-based. It tastes just like meat. It, it bleeds like beef, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it was called... It was called the Alternative Burger. That's what they mm-hmm. called it. There's a few at, at Woolies right now. But yeah. the problem is, like, <laughs> the price for them, it's like $10 for, like, two burgers. Oh, sometimes yeah. more. I paid 6 some, bucks Yeah, for I'm saying some, sometimes more, yeah. So, yeah. Like, a re- like, at the minimum, you're paying about 10 bucks for a decent one. Whereas I can get, like, four pack of the pea protein or the fuck it's made out of like Moroccan style just veggies pressed into a patty yep. for like five bucks so and that's delicious because there's a lot of salt and seasoning in it but yeah, yeah yeah. I mean it's probably not good for me anyways but like still I'll, I'll take the five dollar like for me I like taste but like yeah I'm fine with just eating cardboard for the cheapest ah. price <laughs> well yeah so because you know, in the states I feel like the ones we have they taste very close to actual beef and I would say if you made me do a blind taste test between the Impossible Whopper and the real Whopper, I, I couldn't tell. If you didn't tell me beforehand, I would not know. And right now, the price point difference here is maybe like 20%. And I feel like at least for ground beef. So this isn't, you know, like, you know, other cuts, but ground beef, at least we got we got at that place. So I think once the price point is exactly the same, which will probably happen in a few years, once the tech, tech is better, like I think I would just have the I would prefer the plant based one just just for the sake of like I don't know like sustainability ethics because like what what is it cows are like one of the least sustainable animals to to farm to ranch oh yeah they take up a lot of acreage yeah, and... yeah. so yeah. yeah once the price point is the same I do think like I would I would probably consciously seek out the, uh, the imitation meat ones once the price was equal. But that's only for a burger, though. Like that's like such a small right, subset right. of the market that people focus on. Like burgers. It's a, it's a step, though. It's a step. Yeah, like burgers, and there's also sausages as well. Yeah, there's yeah. A lot of like fake. That's sausages, a big part of the meat sausages. market. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And fake meat it's, sausages are pretty good. Like they get pretty close. Yeah, I'm just saying it's, it's a pretty big step. It's it's a small step, but it's pretty important in terms of. Well, if you think going meatless is important, it's also the market marketability of it. Like burgers are a good marketable aspect i guess oh i didn't really ask you like why, why did you go uh why did you go meatless or a vegetarian or or whatever however you want to describe it mainly sustainability reasons like just mm. you know what you just touched on like the, the necessity for so much resources to be put towards food it's mainly just that like kind of aspect and there's a bit of like ethics and like how like factory farming and stuff like that but you could get around factory farming like it's not impossible to get around factory farming but it is impossible to get around the the raw material required to make meat, you know, <laughs> that thing. Oh, yeah. But, like, if it was just a factory farming thing, like, you could just, you know, have a friend who, like, actually farms, like, you know, it's quote-unquote ethically. Like, you can get around that pretty easily. But it's more like the sustainability reason. And I just felt like uh, you could do it, like, a halfway measure, but I was just like, eh. I was never a big meat eater anyways. Like chicken, yeah, but never meat. Like I was never into meat or fish really. So it wasn't a big deal to me. Yeah. Okay. When did you stop eating uh, meat, by the way? Uh, six, seven, eight years ago. Okay. All right, all right. So, so you, you had your fill. I had my fill, yeah, as a kid. All right. All right. I kind of want to ask you guys. So apparently the McRib, I thought it was only an American thing. It's not. What are some, uh, I want to ask, what are some interesting fast food, like local items you guys have? Because for me, this isn't American. The McRib really reminds me of the Pukogi burger in Korea, mm. which which is basically, you guys know, well, you guys know what Pukogi is, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It's actually kind of interesting because Pukogi used to be the, uh, used to be the representative of Korean food back in the 80s. And then people realized, wait, this kind of sucks. There's like way better Korean food, and they just <laughs> it's more that like bulgogi was the closest thing to teriyaki because it's like sweet soy mm. and sugar, and then people started eating other Korean foods, which I think are like much tastier. It's this is like a tangent, I guess, but bulgogi itself is less popular in Korea now because I think Koreans also realize, hey, we we have way, way better foods than this. Let's so have wait, other wait, stuff. Where, where did first come in the influence come from? From inside Korea or outside Korea? And it bled into bulgogi. Korea. No, I no. The bulgogi becoming um, less popular. Was oh, it? I think it's just independent. I think like overseas is probably because people started exporting, not exporting, you know, expats started running restaurants that serve other foods. But and independent from that inside Korea, I think it's probably a mixture of economics and other factors. But people are like, eh, let's just like have grilled pork belly instead. It's like way better than bulgogi. <laughs> like, if ah. you're going to have like 
you know, meat on a, if you're going to cook meat over, over charcoal, you know, let's, let's just have, yeah, let's just have the other stuff that's better, short ribs, pork belly, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. But yeah, um, but yeah, the McRib reminds me of that because in Korea, there's like a very cheap item at McDonald's that's been around for forever, which is the Pulogi Burger, which is basically just a teriyaki burger with mayonnaise. But I mean, that's pretty good. Like, if someone said, hey, you want to have a teriyaki burger with mayonnaise, you'd probably say that's a good idea. So, mm. so any, oh, yeah. any, I mean, I any regional items you guys like? Sorry? So, yeah, so like any regional items? Any regional items from Australia for the, the various fast food chains you think that are like representative of the region or just very good? It's mm. hard because I don't think there are any it's, popular it's, it's, fast food chains that are endemic to Australia. For Porto's? Is it yeah. Porto's no, Australia? Well, no, no, no. I mean, like, is there something on the McDonald's menu that's only sold in Australia, but it's, you think is extremely good? Or that KFC <laughs> menu that's like... Oh. Porto's is either Australian or New Zealand. I've know. never heard of Porto's, but you, you, can tell, you can tell me about it. Yeah, know, okay. Tell me about Porto's. Porto's is basically like Portuguese-style chicken. It, it was here before Nando's existed in Australia. So it was kind of like... Took the Nando's approach, you reckon? Yeah. Yeah, but like just before Nando's came in. So like that was its appeal. It like built a, a base before Nando's came into Australia, which is older. I don't even know. Apparently, Porto's is thirty-four years old. What the fuck? Yeah, they started out of Bondi. Actually. Yeah, I know that because obviously Bondi meant Nando's. Yeah. Look, we're actually gonna be factual here. Normally, I'll just lie and just make up a year. Uh nineteen eighty-seven, nineteen. Okay, so pretty much the same year. But yeah, like it's basically yeah, basically Portuguese-style chicken and burgers. You can buy whole chickens. They're pretty good. They're a bit spicy. If you really want them to be spicy, but not too spicy that people will be pushed away from them. And that's pretty much like the only Australian thing I think of. Red Rooster as well. We just really like chicken in Australia. Okay. But your KFC menu is the same. It's basically... Like you, there's nothing on the menu that... Not even like a side. Is it I, I would say the biggest distinction with KFC is one, the food is much better. Like I've had KFC in both countries and I think it's just the Australian produce is on average higher quality than you, what you get in America. You mean the chicken? Yeah, the chicken itself. Okay. Just tastes better. I've um, heard that. But we had fries way before you guys did at KFC, which I thought was interesting. Like, it was a big deal, right? When fries were released at KFC over there? Uh, they've been in and out, actually. They, right. they've, yeah. They bring fries in and out of KFC? What the fuck? Yeah, they, they used to have them, then they didn't have them, now they have them again. Yeah, and they, you've got biscuits over so there. So what did they have instead? Biscuits. They used yeah, to, biscuits. Well, so in the interim period, we got fries back again this year. But before that, for I want to say like a decade, it was potato wedges, which are basically fries, but much, you know, bigger. They're just oh, like yeah. thicker yeah, fries. But it really does change like the taste because a fry has the you know ideal ratio of crispy exterior to soft interior. And serving yep. a potato wedge means you're getting so much more of the soft interior. And I, mm. and I can see why some people would like that better. There's probably a small minority of customers who are very angry in America that they got rid of them. But but personally, yeah, I, I much prefer the fry. I don't think the KFC fries are good anyway, so it doesn't really matter to me. I like them. <clears throat> you I like think they've this? got like a pretty good surface area to really? volume ratio. Yeah, I'm surprised. I thought it was universally hated. As long as they're crispy and seasoned well, which I guess is true of most fries, but especially with the KFC ones. Mm. Nando's fries suck, though. I uh, agree. Yeah. Right. I don't even know. I want to try these biscuits, man. Do we have, so you don't have biscuits? No, you're going to make them yourself. They uh, do not sell them here. What the fuck? Do you have any idea what I'm a biscuit is, might be like? Wait, no yeah, Tell us what you think a biscuit is. <laughs> wait, wait. I legit have no clue what the fuck it is. Like, I'm Googling it. I'm looking at the photo. I still don't know what the fuck it is. Have you had a scone? Okay, that's what I was going to say. It looks like a scone. Is it a scone? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Wait, uh, so are scones one of the things that carried over from the UK to Australia? Yeah, they're, they're big. Yeah. Do we call them scones? They're not scones. They're scones, right? They're scones. Scones. Well, I think that's like regional, but yeah. Right. It's a scone, but it's, I would say it's more, but it leans more tender. Yeah. And you would. So soft, you would, I don't know. And you would always have it hot, I think. Because I think you can have a scone that's, like, chilled, but you would almost never have a biscuit that's not, not warm. Mm. All right. Sounds good. I want to try it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no. It, it's, I mean, if you have a scone, it. if you had a scone, I think you've had it. You have a good idea of it already. 
yeah but it's it's kfc branded so like as a consumer i must consume <laughs> so like I'm, I'm gonna have to get it somehow true all right so going from the world of fast food to the world of fine dining there was this article that i don't know how i came across it but i came across it and i linked it to the chat and it's about this uh asian american chef oh uh, yeah uh who's doing these kind of conceptual dinners it's not it's not even a restaurant apparently it's you like, hold these private dinners and people like who dinner are in clubs dinner. i was like what yes. the fuck there's dinner clubs well the way she describes it it's like a prerequisite to become like to become a successful chef because yeah, yeah. that's how you like how you get these followers who like your style of food and i assume they they become your backers for your restaurant or whatnot i mean it makes sense like i'm not i'm not, I'm not against the concept it sounds snooty but i can see why that would happen but but regardless, uh, so before we get into like whatever the topics of Asian American identity, I thought I just thought it was interesting that all these people come to a dinner because they want to experience ostensibly the artistic vision of the chef. And I was thinking, well, my first my gut instinct is that nah, like, that's all that shit's like bullshit. Like food, it should just taste good. It doesn't really matter what meaning it has. Uh, and then I thought about some more, and I thought, you know, maybe that's not the case because, in my, you know, in my experience, if someone tells me, "Hey, this is my mother's recipe or my grandmother's recipe," it doesn't really mean anything. But just knowing that it just subconsciously creates this little emotional connection <laughs> that makes it, you know, seem like five percent better for no, absolutely no good reason, even yeah. though, you know, psychologically, I know it should be only about taste. So what do you got? And obviously, then there's the scene in Ratatouille at the end, and it's the reason why everyone points out Ratatouille is a good movie. To be honest, I don't think Ratatouille is like that great a movie overall, but that scene is very good. Where you know this, this cynical, jaded critic suddenly has this flashback to his youth because of food, and that's that's sort of the theme of the movie. The theme of the movie is that oh yeah, food is valuable because it connects you to feelings and emotions. That's actually the theme of the movie, which is something that I don't necessarily agree with 100 percent, but i understand it better now so how do you how do you feel about that uh manasir uh critic of <laughs> high cuisine yeah uh, i've eaten at my fair share of fine dining places and i think you can look at it two ways right like there are to compare them to movies there are directors that make films to explore ideas and then there are directors who make films to explore themselves um deep yeah right like <laughs> I would I would look at um like pretty much all of Martin Scorsese's uh, yeah. filmography, right? It's all sort of lodged in this vaguely Italian Catholic tradition. He explores questions of, you know, masculinity, family, faith. These are things that are part of his life and he thinks about them a lot, which is why they appear in his film. And then you've got Christopher Nolan, who likes the big concepts. You know, he makes ethics. He does. He's not interested in himself. He's interested in um, really big existential questions. I mean, I he kind of is in a way, but yeah. also not. But yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe that's him, right? And maybe that's just the person he is. Like he likes to think about that stuff a lot. Like mm-hmm. I, that's neither here nor there. I think when it comes to cooking, I think you kind of have to add. Like, uh, I feel uncomfortable saying this, but. Isn't there an extra layer of narcissism you have to you have to breach as a chef to make food about yourself? Because I can't think of a single food culture in the world where the food is centered around the person, right? Um, mm. We're all ethnics, right? Like, I'm Asian, Wax is Asian, Ads is Asian. Like, we know that if I was to attach a cultural lens to food, it's about community, it's about family. That's why, you know, this is the most obvious thing ever, but, like, a Chinese um, dinner tends to be everyone gets rice and there's a bunch of side dishes in the middle and everyone shares yeah. together, right? I get that. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it's... I think the thing is with... I think that we're not putting into this and you said it with like the, the film thing and you said like basically film is like that but you're saying... Um, correct me if I'm wrong but food is like all about community so it's about everyone else rather than you but film can be both. Is that your point? Um. I, yeah, I mean if I was to really simplify it I would say that's my point. I'm just saying I'm not, I'm not necessarily <laughs> against chefs that make food to explore their own stories or to tell stories about themselves, right? Like, I get it. Like, mm. um, presumably, chefs like this lady who makes... Um, I'm reading this duck dish. It's called Ultra Cultured Super Work Duck. Wait, I did not read the name cheek. of it. What the fuck? 
It's a tongue-in-cheek reminder that taking one trip and using one spice and making one dish from another culture doesn't make anyone an expert. Okay, sure. You've probably dealt with, you know, a lot of um, like struggles and maybe discrimination yeah. as, as, a, as a person of colour in the restaurant industry. I'm sure that's true. Mm-hmm. I just... I, I can't get over the fact that for a lot of these people... And it's not just the, you know, the Asians that do this. Like, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. People keep talking about food telling their story. It's on MasterChef. It's on Top Chef. It's on every sort of form of cooking media you can think of. It's like half the episodes in Chef's Table about that as well. It's insane how popular those kind of well, like MasterChef and shit are. I was surprised. I've never found the appeal of it. Well, let me, let me ask you this. So, is it more that you're okay with people expressing themselves through through food? You just find the idea of racial identity to be a tri- to be trite. So you rather than explore other <laughs> ideas. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's trite at all, right? And I would say, as someone who you know eats eats out a lot and is interested in this kind of food. Like, I, I don't mind it, you know? I like mm-hmm. it when people do miso foams and uh, modern takes on their traditional cuisine, which for some reason always ends up being classical French techniques. That's neither here nor there. Um, what I'm interested in is sort of... Well, what's the difference as a, as a consumer, right? As someone who actually eats and enjoys the food. Are you there to actually understand the chef? Here's the thing, right? About, or are you just up to eat interesting and delicious food. But you're, like, you're thinking of that as like someone who goes to a restaurant to eat. The people she's serving aren't people who go to a restaurant to eat. They're people who come to some random house. Do they go to a house? I don't know where they go. Somebody, some rich area, and they come specifically for the chef, right? That's the whole point of it. You don't do that. Yeah, like, yeah, very rarely do you do that for a restaurant. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're the people who go to the indie theater to see like the screening of a director this niche indie director that they're really interested in because they like their ideas for whatever reason this isn't someone who's opened a restaurant and demanding or trying to make a lot of money off of it yeah i think i think once you get to the restaurant stage you're 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 aiming it towards someone else i don't think she could do this maybe she could i don't know like how how she could but i don't know how she could do it when she opens up the restaurant you know what i mean if she pushes towards that area well, once you open a restaurant, like capitalism demands that you aim it at someone else. But if, yeah, this is this is actually the only sort of environment in which you can have this dish. Yeah. Yeah, and this is what I'm saying. I think we need to make the distinction between food for foodies and then food for regular people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't say this as like an elitist. Oh, look at these common masses who don't understand like the real depths of Ford's cuisine. Like, to me, I think on some level. It feels, it just feels uncomfortable. Like, I, I get what they're trying. I, I get that they need to distinguish themselves and make a name for themselves. But to me, it's almost impossible to disassociate, like, Asian food from its, like, communal and familial roots. Like, that's, it just seems narcissistic. And I get, you know, maybe it's commentary and I'm down with that. Like, I don't, I don't understand it, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. I just think, wh- where do you go from there? You know, once you've, once you've challenged people's perception of what, you know, various cuisines are and what your cultural background says about the food that you cook, where do you go from there? You end up opening an Asian restaurant. That happens nine times out of ten. Like Yeah, but then, then you go, look, I just went on to my individualism and now I've reconnected with uh, my yeah. communal roots and I'm opening this restaurant for you and your family to come eat at. Sketching a chef's own narrative arc. I yeah. mean, I'm down with that. It's just, it's just one layer too far for me to get on board with. I think that's what I would say. Well, yeah, no, it's definitely nothing that I would pay to participate at, but I'm not against, I, I understand the dynamic, you know, she's supplying this, this food experience that's very, very much marinated and saturated with her personal experiences and trauma. And there's people who want to consume that with their food for some reason. I mean, it's the same reason why some people want to watch movies that aren't necessarily like fun or entertaining. They just want to watch movies that are interesting and different and sometimes very unpleasant. So, and I, honestly, personally, my biggest objection to it is that I don't see food as an equal art medium as movies or, or you know, books or music. I think you know, wow. you, pe- the people who try to make it... The Game kind of Awards art... were on today. You know that, right? <laughs> games are art too. I have no I feel, opinion I have, on food. But games okay. are art. Okay, I don't care I, about food. We can... We can Talk about food. I'll, I'll even put like games above food <laughs> in what? that sense. Really? Yeah, no. Food, food, I think for me, food is like because 
food is functional first, and if it has any other meaning beyond that, mm, that's I great. Guess, it's it's great so. if you if you can add anything more beyond that. Congratulations to you. But I'm and he, maybe that makes me close minded. But I'm not I'm not particularly interested in people exploring these deep ideas of express and expression through food that I am through other mediums. Uh, I but, feel like food but, definitely goes above games. Right, just just right. because of its like, <laughs> just because of how like prestigious it has, like the prestigious claim it has. Not not necessarily yeah. because I agree with it, but I think yeah. like in real life, food is above games for sure in terms of artistic expression. Yeah. Uh, oh, also just related to the article, this is not just about food, but I, I find this is about the author herself. Uh, I think her name is Jenny Dorsey. So this this meal is basically about her experiences. The so the emotions she's trying to explore and express to this through this food is basically about being Asian American, being an immigrant in a country. And trying to find your identity in this culture, which is a probably, which is a very ubiquitous theme across, you know, all, all sorts of art, whether mm-hmm. it's music, movies, you know, literature, whatever. And uh, I, I want, I want to ask you, you guys, have you ever felt like the need to create that kind of stuff, that kind of art? Because uh, it's so ubiquitous. There's so much of it, but at the same time, I feel I get the, the feeling sometimes it's. Like one percent of people who are who feel very strongly about their experience for creating all of that stuff. Yeah, and I think the other part is you got to think about who's creating it, right? Like, I do believe in the the shared Asian Australian experience, right? Maybe my my Laotian diaspora experience is probably quite unique as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in all that. I just think there's there's a layer of I guess pre selection that kind of changes the way that this kind of content is produced and what i mean by that is um so i'm asian right and most of my friends are asian i went to a predominantly asian high school full of smart kids most of us have gone on to work in finance medicine uh, law things like that just good good asian careers right things that'll make mom and dad happy those of us who have gone on to produce art instead and do you know creative jobs that don't pay anywhere near as well um they tend to do so because they've kind of been encultured in in Western arts and craft. Like that's Yeah, I agree. It's if you read the story, like I'm reading this article right now, it really you can see like her influences, right? I don't think someone in their mid twenties grows up thinking about things like this. I think they're conditioned to think this way because this is the art that they consume. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think with most like if you're if you're coming from a you know immigrant culture the immigrant culture is not going to be focused on actual like artistic expression so the only yeah. way you're going to get that is if you do consume the predominant culture which is whatever you know whatever it is in the country you are whether it be american culture i guess american culture is like so dominant that even in australia you're still like for me it was it was british like music like i was really into british music as a kid so it's like one of my biggest influences is british music and then later on like ambient kind of stuff like that but yeah, I think you don't get that from your culture, even though it probably does exist. Like, obviously, you know, artistic expression exists in every culture. But because you're an immigrant, there's no time to, like, be influenced by that because your parents are like, I, you know, I can't even speak the language. You've got to go go to school, learn, come back. What is music? What is art? I don't care about those. Just get, get good marks in English, yeah. math, and science. And even if you, even if you look at the... Um, I guess the popular Asian chefs in Australia who, um, I guess a second generation, you know, grew up with immigrant parents and all that kind of food they make is not necessarily this challenging, evocative stuff. Like the guys that run Lotus at Barangaroo just make really good Chinese food. And there's a cheeseburger on the menu because yeah, but (laughs) I just think when people talk about their Asian Australian or Asian American experience, what they're actually talking about is the Asian Australian or Asian American experience from somebody who has been encultured uh, and has consumed a lot of content um, written by immigrants, which one way or another has an extreme Western bend to it. You know? Yeah, I agree. This is a this is an understanding of this this idea that food is meant to express you as an individual is an extremely Western idea. Yeah, that's not an Asian idea at all. You go to Japan, there are no sushi chefs out there saying yes. This perfect piece of Otoro Are you sure? My journey as a chef. It doesn't. That doesn't are you, happen. Are you sure? Mm, it sometimes does happen. Like they don't. They don't. Portray, but I think the chef is super important in Japan. 
Oh, it is. No doubt it yeah. is. But they don't express it that way, right? Like, uh, I don't know. I feel like you're splitting hairs there. Like, they're, they're, like you wouldn't become a, a, a master. You wouldn't become a master of something and invest so many years in something unless you had some sort of investment of self into into the craft. Right, right, right. I, I don't doubt that. Like, obviously, this you pay so much for you know expensive sushi in Japan because you're paying for the years of training that have gone into the sushi chef committing his life to to making fish for you, right? Yeah, people wouldn't train to do that because it's yeah. so lucrative. They they train to do it because they find some sort of value in it, and it, it it's it's, it's a, I feel like you could say it's a less ost- ah, I'm I'm sort of assuming here, but I think it's yeah. a, it's a expression of self. It's just not as ostentatious as like a celebrity chef, but it is an I, expression of self. I'm just saying expression of craft, which is inherently tied to self, is different to expression of self through a cultural lens. Is it? Is I think it, it is. I definitely think it is. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, we might have to agree or disagree. But I don't think that the that the immigrant experience is as all-encompassing as... Like, not every Asian kid in Australia had to hide and eat their lunch in the bathroom because their garlic chive dumplings were too small. Right, 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 like, right. Right, but, but at the same time, like, I think we, uh, this is easy to mock for... for Oh, it's for, fun to mock, no doubt, no doubt. For certain reasons, but but I also understand like this is this is this person's experience. It's a real experience. This person isn't making anything up. This person is like just they. Hey, I want to share my experience, and people want to share their experiences all the time. And this person is not assuming to speak for other people. And and at the end, you at, at the end, she does share that anecdote about how someone else who clearly has some empathy, who shared this experience, came up to her and said, "Hey." I, I really appreciated that. So, yes, that, that's all, that was more my original question. I was I was sort of like musing about how common is this uh, experience among uh, second generation mi- minority kids in other countries about feeling this sense of non belonging. Is is it because I feel it's very very prevalent in art? At the same time, it doesn't seem quite as prevalent in real life. Yeah. See, see, that's the thing where you come back to Manny's point, where you say basically. Depending on where you live, and like, I, I feel like it depends on which generation you are, especially in Australia. Like, that's how, true. Like, there are there are areas in Australia which are like, or at least in Sydney, I don't know, even Melbourne, I guess. I don't know about other cities, but in Sydney or Melbourne, where like, if you go to a public school, predominantly, like, you're gonna have a majority of one culture, and it's not gonna be Australian. Like, there there are gonna be schools that are predominantly Asian, predominantly predominantly Arab, predominantly Italian. Like there's just going to be areas there which even the public schools like they didn't have to build schools specifically for them, so that if you are if you do go to a school like that, then you're never going to ha- like not never but you're unlikely to have that experience because everyone is like you even though you live in a country where the culture is different and that's where you get into Manny's point where the only way someone's going to start create like creatively is they're unlikely to come from those areas they're more likely to come from an area where they they are the minority, like in terms of the school. I think, anyways. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it sort of ties into, like, why do we really like to mock people who are super tied to their uh, their parents' ethnicity and they, they join uh, subtle Asian traits Facebook groups? You know, it's like, why, why is that such a magnet for mockery? Because it's fun. I don't know. Like, uh... but, but why is it fun? Though? Like, what's the fun? In, like, well, why do we think we're better than, than these kids? Because it's uh, this must be rooted in a reality, right? Yeah, okay. I think any element of mockery through social media is predisposed towards us feeling superior to other people. I'm right. not above admitting that, right? Right. But we we not... do it for, for all kinds of things. Hmm. All right. The... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to transition, but I, I want to hear your last thoughts. Yeah. Um, my thought on why it feels, why it's fun, or, or, or rather, not why it's fun, but why so many people seem to enjoy mocking in general is because we have similar life experiences to a lot of these people who join groups like subtle asian traits and talk about how you gotta you know you gotta wash rice in the pot and then measure it with your finger like these are small parts of our upbringing and maybe iconic parts that we kind of latch onto for whatever reason they're only meaningful because they're shared and we talk about them you know i don't think like my parents' method of cooking rice in a rice cooker defines my culture uh, any more than any part of it. And 
I'd, I'd point out that if if people really wanted to engage with their culture, they they could do a lot better than talking about things like boba tea and anime and washing rice. And they could try and learn their parents' language. They could try and visit yeah, their I parents' think, home. I think <laughs> language. I don't know how important it is in America to can keep your mother tongue, but I don't think it's very important in Australia. Yeah, it's just not valued. It's not valued and at so, all. And so, have you guys seen Arrival? Yeah. Nah. The, are you talking about the one where the aliens come yeah. and then that little... Like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about okay, language. So big, see the world, yeah. The big twist in Arrival, which, I mean, it's been out for a few spoilers. years, so I don't feel bad about spoilers. Uh, uh, spoiler, spoiler alert. Spoiler, spoiler alert, alert, everybody. Alert. Yeah, you can skip wow. forward maybe a minute or two. If, thank um, you. If you haven't seen it yet. Our, our two listeners and Ads' mom will thank us. Yeah. The big twist in Arrival is that the gift that the aliens have brought the humans is the gift of understanding their language, which is um, not linear, not back yeah. to front, left to right, but cyclical, right? The language by, itself builds on time and like all that shit. Yeah, and by understanding that they view time and existence as, uh, as a cycle or as something that exists in multiple dimensions and not just front to back, enables them to gain a different perception on time, right? It's based on this theory that the language you grow up speaking and understanding kind of in some way shapes your worldview. Yeah. And I think it's much like that for Asian languages as well. I mean, it's it's why maybe Chinese ideas are so much easier to understand than other Asian ideas because their language just translates so efficiently and easily into English. All right. I, I feel like you're, you're getting into like very like abstract weird space yes i am i am pretty sure all the science you mentioned in arrival was completely wrong but we didn't care about it it's it's possibly problem it's possibly problematic because you because because you're now you're going to say that oh you know the all these uh latin dramatic languages you know they they landed toward uh i don't know rapid expansion and and uh yeah and 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 an aggressive attitude which allowed colonialism i'm like oh let's let's not go there man let's let's not let's not go there I could say that, but I won't. Latin is the reason we have capitalism. I'm going to say it right now. <laughs> Fuck Latin. All my homies hate Latin. Manager, I'm going to say that was interesting for you. I, I entertained your idea, but I'm going to say it's probably bullshit. Man, you didn't let me get to my point. It was just like... Anyway, your, fine, I'll, your, I'll hold the L. Was your, was your point that Arrival is a good movie that's underrated? Arrival yeah. is a great movie. You should definitely watch uh, it. Yeah, it's I like think you should watch it. I think it's very <laughs> underrated. Also, right. the soundtrack for Arrival is fucking... Amazing! It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's really, it's good. really good. Right. I just oh, do that like at least once a month. My point is that language is a huge part of culture, and people seem to ignore that. That's all. Yes, but that's like a yeah. Obviously, yes. But yeah. Okay. Speaking of soundtracks, thanks, thanks for the segue, segue ads for fucking letting me out of this one. Give me the escape rope. Ads soundtracks. You, soundtracks. What did you want me to talk about? Album of the Segways. week. No, Segway. Uh, Segway. Oh, Soundtrack. Let's go to... Oh, ah. we, we were going to talk about this Soundtrack this week? I didn't know. God we damn it. God damn it. You didn't specify <laughs> if we were going to talk about it this week or not. Anyway, Soundtrack. This is why we have meetings. The this Cowboy Bebop Soundtrack. Cowboy Bebop. What an amazing anime which Manny just dropped halfway through because he didn't understand how language is influential in Cowboy Bebop. I was 12. And how See You Space Cowboy influences his worldview on love and romance and human connection. Anyways, the Seatbelts recently released, I think it was like six months ago now, released their entire discography on Spotify. And as we know, Spotify is the zeitgeist of music. And if your music isn't on Spotify, then you probably don't matter. That's the truth. Truth. Uh, And I've been really listening to it, and I quite enjoy it. And what are your opinions on that? Have you guys listened to the soundtrack? Outside of just the Cowboy Bebop world? Yes, I, I very specifically remember watching Cowboy Bebop as a kid and liking the music so much. Wait, wait you I, were a kid when it came out? Yes, I watched it during its original run. I am, I'm very old. Uh, just needed to and put that I remember going to the store and I, because you could not buy... And this is like pre-Napster, pre-every... Well, I think Napster was out then, but it wasn't good enough that you could download anime music. So I remember wa- buying ripped illegal CDs of all, all three all three uh, volumes of the soundtrack from this local anime slash gaming store because I liked it that much. It is really good. What, what is your favorite track? <sighs> this is hard. It's hard to say. So so it used to be Blue a really long time mm. ago. I thought I thought Blue is the... Uh, it's the outro song of Cowboy Bebop. And I think I liked it so much because it, I could not detach it from the 
ending because it, it ties in so well with the ending of the series, which is amazing. But I, I would have to say it's Tank. Yeah, it's at, at the end yeah, of the Benny. day, it's the one that's the most timeless and it stands out independent of the series. I think like Real Folk Blues and Blue are excellent songs. The, but the, the live version of Real Folk Blues, the one that came out this year, Real Folk Blues for these days. Uh, no, I didn't actually. It's a really good, me later. really good, really good version. I quite, I, bring, I like it more than Rufo, the original. Did they bring back Maya Mane to yeah, sing she, it again? Yeah, she she did it. Okay, yeah. So like uh, it, was, it was just three like three people, very like low key. They they've also got an orchestral version of it, but the orchestral version's fine. But I, I like the more like laid back one. But yeah, but I do like uh, Real Folk Blues and Blue, similar sounding songs, but. Yeah, they're very much so different from other anime songs. And it's kind of crazy that those are some of the iconic songs with lyrics in in, in this iconic anime. They're, they're so... Yeah, well, I, I guess like Cowboy Bebop in general, the entire work was very atypical for anime. But I think those songs sort of drove the point home. It's like those kind of songs, like you don't find them anywhere. These are the iconic songs playing over some of the most important moments in the series. And that sort of song with lyrics doesn't play in Western movies, in TV shows. It's just so, it's so unique. I find it pretty insane that while it's predominantly jazz and jazz influence, yes. um, and like a lot of the tracks are like, like jazz in and of itself is like copying and like rewriting certain like riffs and whatnot. So it's not like endemic to this, endemic to the entirety of jazz. But uh, the amount of languages that come into it, like into the actual show, like for, for an anime, it's like insane how there's there's French, there's I think there's an Italian track, there's an Arabic track for when they're in pseudo, uh, you know, Middle East on that Jupiter, yeah, whatever it was, on yeah. Ju- Jupiter's moon, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So like that, they, they, like who who goes and gets some random like Moroccan guy to sing a, an Arabic song for your soundtrack? Like, I don't think that happens yeah. anything anywhere else. They'll just get some yeah. pseudo you know, Middle Eastern sounding instrumental and call it a day. Okay, wait, so let's do our, let's do our top five songs. Uh, ads, can you go first? And, and I'll like, I want to go back and look it up so I can actually make a list. So, so fill for me. Give okay. me your top five and explain my, why. My top five, right right now, like it changes every few weeks. Real Folk Blues for these days, that specific version is one of my favorite. I, I really like Musawa, which is the, the Arab song. Which is like I, I I thought it was Arabic, but it's like some Moroccan dialect, which I don't understand. So it that one, that one's really good. And then you've got um, the Fay version, the one on one of the remix. What was it called? Let me find it. Fay. It has one of these DJs on it. Fay DJ Vadim remix. That one. You see it a lot. Sampled a lot in like you know lo-fi music. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm at one of my three. I like the. Um, I like Tank, but not, not so much that I put in my top five. And then I, I like, uh, hmm, what goes for? Now, now we get into the ones that are all around about the same level. Hmm, I, I could see, like, man, it's here. Fill, fill, fill with your talk, fill with your uh, thoughts on Cowboy Bebop. Why did you drop Wait, the... is he, I have to talk about Cowboy Bebop to show that I've watched halfway while he thinks about the topic that he brought up to begin with okay i can yeah. do that yeah that's called filling that's called being a good uh good co-host i'm not a co-host i'm a guest you're meant to be structuring the conversation around me all right chill, chill your chill for your podcast all right no no, no i'll talk about cover people that's fine yeah no it's uh it's got this i mean the whole soundtrack's like jazz right yeah for the most part yeah it's jazz i think it was kind of seminal in the sense that it's influenced a lot of shows after and this idea of like um the aesthetics of of music of genre music and anime blending together like we saw it again in samurai samurai shampoo that's like they're right? they, they like really like a lot of people call them like twin shows yeah you can see the inspiration yeah. and um i've been watching a uh, great pretender recently which is like a heist show mm. uh, which also has that sort of like you know high tension jazz sort of feel to it um yeah i mean it's interesting i i really enjoy shows like that i think fully coolie is uh another example um, the Pillows did the soundtrack to that one, and it was a lot of sort of like indie rock vibes. It's good. Yeah. I, I realize that, but like, I can't ask Az this question and think assume that he'll come up with this quickly because he's too much of a music nerd, and yeah, he'll, he'll want to get it right. All right, all right. I'll give you my list, which is, has been done with like maybe one minute of review. I'm gonna go with "Gotta Knock a Little Harder" from the movie. 
mm-hmm. which is another it's another song in the same vein of real folk blues and blue it's just Maya Mane just belting out this kind of like very epic song uh, I'm gonna go Space Lion add to Space Lion yeah Space Lion is good and that's also because like, I sort of uh, attach it to a certain episode it's part of a very very uh, one the, it's a mid-season two-episode arc in the yeah, series, yeah. and it's, it's part of that. Then I'm going to go Real Folk Blues, the ending song. And then I'm going to go Blue, which is the ending ending song. And then, of course, the iconic tank. And I'll fill four ads while as he thinks. And you can interrupt me <laughs> whenever you're done with your rank. Your rank. So I actually remember I, I bought all these albums, and I listened to them a lot. And I listened to them because back in those days when you bought of music you had to listen to it because it wasn't free on internet um, and i remember thinking you know what there's some really high highs on the soundtrack but to be honest uh i feel like some of the middle songs are like okay they're fine they're fine they're not like super memorable yeah they're, they're but that's how a soundtrack is like if like every sound on a soundtrack was like a banger hyper re-listenable that would be more odd so and i want to and one of the so I, I actually had some friends, a bunch of my my friends and roommates in college were jazz majors, and I never really wanted to ask them whether this is good or not because I was I was very afraid that they would say ah this is like all right, you know it's it, I don't know if Cowboy Bebop is jazz for people who like the idea of jazz and have no idea if it's actually jazz that's like good jazz. I don't think I think they did get some like pretty like popular jazz not popular but like influential jazz artists of the time onto it like other than the core like they got a lot of collabs going with it like a surprisingly massive amount of collabs for an anime so mm. I, I, th- I think it's but yeah like i said it is very der- like a lot of the middle tracks especially are very derivative like kind of like like there's one that's basically like a derivative of um oh, i forgot the track but there's one that's a derivative of like a, a james bond style where they're doing that like that yeah and also, isn't Maya Mane, like, not Maya Mane, isn't Yoko Kano, like, actually, like, doesn't she commit plagiarism? <laughs> or isn't she suspected of, uh... Yeah, was that material? Did that happen? I know she's been accused. I don't know if it's, it's real. I don't know, but like like I said, when you... Man, uh, it's, right, it's hard to me, get into the me, whole music. Give, give, me your fuck, give me your fucking ranking so we can close. We're, we're coming in on an hour. <laughs> I'm bringing in Space Lion as well. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad you did. It's a, it's a great song. And then I'm gonna bring in um, "Goodnight Julia" as well. I really like "Goodnight Julia." It's, it's, it's yeah. really, nice. it's a really nice little tune. Wait, so "Space Lion" five? Uh, no, "Goodnight Julia" and the, and then "Space Lion" five. Yeah. Okay, and so just give me your ranking. Five, number five. Okay, number five is "Space Lion." Number Num- four, "Goodnight Julia." Number three. Number three is "Tank." Number two. Number two is I forgot it now. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say before? I you but, didn't say before. I did say something. Oh, I said Ahamaduche. Yeah. Okay. Number and, one. And then number one is uh, Real Folk Blues for these days. Ah. Okay. Thank you. You should, Keith, li- you should listen to it. I was producer to- Keith. Is, is there is there what are the rules regarding uh, rights? Can you play like five second clips of these songs? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna actually. I'm not gonna actually. No, that's too much. Too much effort. No, Fuck that. Too much effort. Just go listen but, to me, lazy fox. Just saying, if you have some free time. All right, guys. Uh, damn. Ads. Uh, sorry, uh, Matt, Matt, Matt is here. Thanks for coming on with us, talking about food and giving us your unique perspectives on why certain cultures with certain languages deserve to rule the world. Plug your stuff. Yep. That's right. I'm a white supremacist, everyone. Glad to be here. Plug your stuff. Manny, plug your stuff. Yeah. Plug. Oh, plug my plug. Okay. Wait, 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 plug. I have nothing to plug. Okay, yes, I have one do. thing to plug. Your podcast. Yeah. Okay. I was like, wait, what does he ask me to plug? I have a podcast. I have an NBA podcast called Hoops and Hot Pot. Uh, my friend Felix was on the last episode. I'm hoping to do more uh, sort of basketball content throughout the year as the season ramps up. Um, but I'm o- I'm open to ideas as well. I'm trying to feel like a niche that I don't even know exists yet. So uh, if you're if you're up for I guess how I would describe my podcasting style is I've I've read Zach Lowe and I listen to Dunked On, but I reject their more extreme aspects and I'm still into the narratives. That's how I describe myself. And hot is pot. That... And hot pot. So you you'll, yeah. you'll you'll give your hot food takes. Yeah, well we'll try to weave them in where appropriate. 
Especially yeah. if there's like food related NBA news. Like I, I had a lot to say when Lou Will went to the club for chicken wings. I was like, really, man? Like these ones? Anyway. Ads. Plug my stuff. I've only got one thing to plug, and that is this podcast, because I'm a shill. So continue watching this podcast. Like, subscribe. I don't know what you do with podcasts, but you do the following, the rating, stuff like that. Do that. Right. God damn it. I thought <laughs> this is my now, podcast. Now you don't have anything to say. <laughs> I thought this is gotcha. my podcast. Now you, you, you've got to plug something else now. I, I've already plugged the podcast. You can't do it. Subscribe, rate, review, unsubscribe, rate, subscribe again, download, delete, download again, rate, un- unrate, whatever fucking fucks with the algorithm so this goes higher. All right, guys. <laughs> let's go. Latest. See ya. Peace.